Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. It says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. You see in, in verse 2 he says, walk in love, and that's that agape love, that's that godly love, unconditional love that God has for us and that we're to have for one another. And the things that he begins to describe in verses 3 and 4 are really a a, a corrupt worldly type of love. In fact, every one of those things we'll see is some form of of corrupted or false love, the, the kind of thing that the world refers to as love. And so he's drawing a contrast here between the the love that believers are to have and to exhibit, which is the same kind of love that Christ had for us, and what the world values as love. And so he, he lists these various things. Now put a mark here in Ephesians 5, and I want you, we're going to turn to a lot of verses today. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. The, there's a, a passage here that describes in, in uh, a good way the, the relationship between the kind of love that we're supposed to have and the world. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, it describes there the things that are in the world. And you see, it really gives three kinds of categories of the the things that are in the world and the love of the world. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing about those three things that are mentioned there. If you remember when Satan tempted Eve in the garden, you remember what things he used to tempt her? It, it, uh, we don't need to turn back there, but, but uh, after, after Satan had spoken with Eve, it says that, that when Eve um, saw that the tree was good for food, what's that? That's the lust of the flesh. And she saw that it was, uh, I can't remember the specific term there in, in Genesis, but it, it talks about how it was pleasing to the eye. It's the, the lust of the eyes. And that it was desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. Uh, you remember when the devil tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately after his baptism, he went into the wilderness for uh, 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasted. And you remember that Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ in those three exact same areas. What did he first say? Command that these stones be made bread, the lust of the flesh, you know, trying to get him to use his power just to serve his own flesh. He uh, uh, took him to, he, it said he, he showed him 
all of the kingdoms of the world. It said it took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he showed him those things. That's the lust of the eyes. And then he tried to tempt him to test God by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple to see if the angels really would uh, take, you know, take charge over him and defend him. That would be the, the pride of life. And those are the three areas where the world's going to tempt you. Um, by the way, you have three parts of your being, a spirit, soul, and body. The lust of the flesh pertains to the body. The lust of the eyes often, often uh, has to do with you know, th- things, things of physical beauty and that kind of thing are, are appealing to the, the uh, soul. And then you have the pride of life and that, that filthy spirit that man has by nature. You see? And those are the areas where, where you're going to be tempted. And that's how John here describes the things that are in the world. And he says, don't, don't love the things of the world. Right? And that's the same thing that Paul is telling us here back in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, we're to walk in a true, a, a godly love, agape love, not in these things of the world. Now, the things that he lists, he lists fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. Those are the first things there in, in verse 3. And the first two, uh, fornication and, and uncleanness, are a, a perverted worldly type of love. In fact, the word fornication there, the Greek word is pornaya. We get the, our, our word pornography, pornography from that Greek word. And it's a, a word that describes all kinds of sexual sin. It's, uh, you know, it's not a specific word like adultery, right? I mean, adultery is describing a specific thing, unfaithfulness in marriage. But, but uh, fornication would include adultery as well as all the other sexual sins. And, you know, that often when the world talks about love and the, the world uses the term to make love, they're talking about fornication, pornaya. They're talking about a, 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 a perverted, carnal, fleshly type of thing that isn't really... You, you can't even really call it love, um, but that's what the world refers to as love, right? When, when the world says that two people are lovers, what do they mean? They mean they're involved in, in what the Bible would call fornication, okay? And so the world takes these things, takes, takes these things that really have a, a root in godliness, and, they, and it twists them and perverts them into something wicked and evil. And so he lists there that... that uh, um, a perverted type of love, that pornaya, the fornication. The, the uncleanness there, you know, the, the word, literally, the word that's translated as uncleanness means something that's not purged. You know, when you clean something, you're trying to purge it of whatever's making it unclean, right? So, so when you're washing your hands, you've got dirt that has adhered to your skin, and you're trying to purge that away. And you use that, that you know, pressure and friction and, and you know, water as a solvent or, or soap or whatever to purge that away. That's what, that's what you're trying to do. And here with, with uncleanness, it's, it's not talking about just the kind of uncleanness that somebody has just by neglect or, or whatever. And it's not talking about physical uncleanness anyway. It's talking about moral impurity. But it's talking about somebody really who is, is willfully unclean, Okay and who refuses to be purged, refuses to be clean. And so they're not purged. And when, when you think about what, what would result in that, why would somebody not want to be cleaned of their uncleanness? And the answer is that often people, often ourselves included, we love that uncleanness more than we love truth and righteousness. 
You know, you can't really rightfully talk about love without also talking about hate. You know, as the Bible uses those terms, love and hate, they're always comparison, com, you know, comparable terms. Uh, for instance, when Christ told people that they had, in order to come and follow him, they had to hate their mother and father, what did he mean by that? Did he mean they should just be, be you know, unkind and, and disobey the commandment that says honor father and mother? It wasn't that at all. What he was saying was that their love for him should so far eclipse the natural love that they had for their family that, that it would be hate in comparison, right? They're, they're terms of comparison. And so you cannot love one thing without hating something else, right? If, if you choose to love one thing, you're choosing not to love the other things. If, if you loved everything equally, love wouldn't mean anything, right? So you think about your spouse. The reason that you have that special relationship with your spouse is because you love that spouse more than you love other people, right? And so while we're to have this, you know, this agape love, which is, a, is an unconditional love, you realize that you can't love something without hating something else. And sometimes people try and do that, and, and you can't do it. You see, you can't love the Lord and love evil at the same time. It, they're, they're in complete, complete contradiction to one another. If you love the Lord, you have to hate evil. And so uh, often what, what people are trying to do today and what, the, what much of the, you know, the, the seeker-friendly movement and the megachurch movement, they're trying to somehow teach people to love the Lord without teaching them to hate evil. And what winds up is that they don't really wind up loving the Lord either. And so you're not just called to love, you're called to hate some things. And believers should hate some things. Uh, go, to, go to Romans chapter 12. Verse 9 says, Let love be without dissimulation. Now, dissimulation in that verse means hypocrisy. It, uh, the, the, um, the word is used quite a, well, not, not a lot, I guess, in the King James Bible, but, but it means hypocrisy. Now, when you try and love, like when you try and love God without hating evil, you can't help but be hypocritical. Right? Because you're trying to do two contradictory things at the same time. But here it says, let love be without dissimulation, let it be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And so, in, a, in addition, you know, in living the Christian life, in addition to, to cultivating a love for the things of the Lord and a love for the things that are good, the believer ought to, as well, cultivate a hatred for the things of the world. To hate evil. And the place we ought to hate it most and hate it foremost is in ourselves. It's easy to see it in other people and hate it in other people, but the place to hate it first of all is in ourselves. Hate the things that are evil, but if something's good, it says, it says cleave to it. That's the same word that's referred to a, a husband and wife being joined together in marriage, that they, they cleave to one another. That's what it says to do with the things that are good. And, and that's not something that happens naturally. It's not as if you believe the gospel and instantly you're able to identify all the good things and you just love all the good things and hate all the evil things. It's something you have to purposefully cultivate in your life. Now, you can't do that if, if you can't identify what is the good and what is the evil, 
right? And your standard for that is not what your conscience says. Your standard for that is not what tradition says. It's not how you were brought up. Your standard for that is the Word of God. The Word of God is going to define for you what is good and evil. And if the Word of God says something is good, cleave to it. You may not always like it. You may not always uh, even understand it. But cleave to it because the Word of God says it's good. And if the Word of God says it's evil, hate that thing. Have a hatred for it. Abhor is the word that's used there in in Romans 12. And you see that 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 uncleanness there in Ephesians 5 is the person who refuses to do that. They refuse to be purged of that evil. They refuse to be clean. And so they continue in that uncleanness. You see, again, it's that that fleshly, carnal, misplaced love. Um, Go go back to our text in Ephesians 5. And so the first couple of things there, the, the fornication and uncleanness, are... A, a pervert, you know, the word perverted means twisted, right? And they're a, a perverted type of worldly love. The next thing that he lists is covetousness in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 3. So it says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Uh, now, covetousness, you, you notice if you skip down to verse 5, it says, for this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater. The Bible says that covetousness is the same thing as idolatry. Now, covetousness, covetousness is more than just deciding that you, you want something, right? I mean, it, it's legitimate to decide that you want something and to go out and, and work for it and earn that thing. Right? There, there's nothing wrong with that. But covetousness is when you see something that somebody else has and that becomes the, the, you know, the motivating factor in your life is to have what, what they have. Right? And what happens is that thing, that object, begins to take the place of God in your life. So that rather than being interested in the things of the Lord, you put your time and your effort and your, your uh, resources toward that thing that you covet, you see. And the thing is that that once you begin down that path of covetousness, your covetousness is never satisfied. Even when you get what you want, there's something else out there that you, you know, you think about how often there's something that we want so bad and we get what we want and once we have it, it sits there. We don't do anything with it. We don't use it. And then there's something else that we want, right? That's why we accumulate so much junk. Um, if you ever notice, whatever space you have to store your junk, the amount of junk you have will expand to fill that space. It's kind of like, a, like the physical properties of a gas, right? That, that's what makes a gas a gas is that it will expand to fit whatever volume you give it to fill. Your junk will do the same thing, right? I mean, if, if, you know, you wouldn't have a, an extra storage shed on your property to just leave it empty, right? Your stuff's going to expand to fill it up. And... So much of that is just because of our, of our covetousness. We want these things, and then when we have what we want, it's not what we want anymore. We want something else, so we put it in the shed. Okay? And, and covetous, so covetousness is that, that it's a misplaced love. It is a love, right? I mean, you're loving that thing more than you love God. Let's look at a couple of verses. Um, go... Uh, Go to, go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to notice something about this verse. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And verse 6 says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And so, again, it refers to covetousness as idolatry. But you notice what what, uh, verse 2 said? It said, Set your affection on things above. When you covet something, it's because you've set your affection on that. Uh, But here it says, set your affection on things above. It reminds you of your position that you have, where you have a, a position in which you've been risen with Christ, and it says, seek those things which are above and set your affection on things above. Now, often when people quote verse 2, they misquote it. And they misquote it by adding a single letter to a single word in the verse, and they say, set your affections, plural, on things above. Now, notice in your King James Bible, it doesn't say affections, plural. It says affection, singular. Get uh, a couple of verses here for comparison. Go to Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5, all right? So uh, Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5, you're probably running out of fingers to hold all of these verses, but, um, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Now here, this verse uses the word affections, plural. It says, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 26, For this cause God gave them up, speaking about, about the nations of the world, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Now there it uses the plural, affections. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And notice again the use of the word affections. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. It says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections, plural, and lusts. And now go back to Colossians 3. And notice, set your affection on things above. Now, what's the point? Whenever the Bible uses the word affections, plural, it's talking about your flesh. Because your flesh has many affections. And your flesh gets pulled that way, and your flesh gets pulled that way. And, again, that's that, that, you know, you get what you want, and then you don't want it anymore. You want something else, right? And your flesh has all of these affections. He doesn't say set your affections on things above. He says set your one singular affection on things above. You see, setting your affection on things above is something that drowns out all those other affections of the flesh. It's not, you're not just supposed to set one of your many affections on things above. That's to be your one affection. Your one affection should be the spiritual things, the things above, the, the uh, things that have to do with who you are in Christ and your, your position in Christ. Okay? And that's why it's a singular word there. And you can do a, do a study on that word. Go, go through a concordance and look at affection and affections, and you'll find every time it's plural, it's talking about the flesh. But here it's talking about your one singular affection should have to do with the things above. Now, what, what room is there for covetousness when that's where your affection is? By the way, you know, there are some things you are supposed to covet, right? Remember uh, in, in uh, Romans 
chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, when Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, he says, covet earnestly the best gifts, right? Now, why is that kind of covetousness, why are you commanded to do that? Because those are the spiritual things, right? You are supposed to covet spiritual things. You're not supposed to covet these, these things of the world. Set your affection on things above. And again, the, this, is not, this is not something that happens automatically. It's something that has to be done on purpose, that's why it, it tells you, it commands you, set your affection as an action that you do. I'm going to make the decision to set my affection on those things, not on all these things that, that people covet on the earth. And so covetousness is a, is a misplaced love. It takes the love that you ought to have for God, the solitary affection that you should, ought to have for things above, and it puts it on all these earthly, worldly things that are just going to pass away anyway. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. It says in, uh, here in Ephesians 5 that these things should not be named among us. In verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, it says, let it not be, let it not once, excuse me, let it not be once named among you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't talk about it, right? Otherwise, Paul would be violating that right here because he is talking about these things. That naming that it's referring to, um, the, uh, it, it has to do with, really, with your identification. Uh, we're here in, in Ephesians 5. Go back to chapter 3 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, um, starting verse 14. It says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There it's talking about the Lord taking and putting his name upon believers. And it's saying they're, they're named um, after the Father. And it's a reference to the position that we have in Christ. It's talking about having that be the thing that, that defines you. Right? So, so we certainly should talk about these things, and we should talk, you know, uh, talk about the, the position of God's word on things like fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. But he's saying, don't, don't let that be the thing that people think of when they think of you. Right? When people think of you, when people think of your church, they should not think of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. Right? That should not be the, the name that is associated with, with you. Okay, so, so go back to our text now. Paul says that for these things to be not named among us, he says that that is, is becoming for saints. Um, he says, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. And he's using the word become there not to talk about, uh, you know, turning into something, you know, as in, as in, Becoming that thing. But he's using it, when you say that somebody looks very becoming, right? It's saying that they're well-dressed, they're, they're dressed appropriately, right? And that's, that's the sense that the term is used here. He says, when saints participate in these things, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, it's not becoming. It's not fitting would be a, a, a synonym. The, the word there uh, can also mean fitting. When a saint who has this position in Christ who's been justified, who's been sanctified, and, and you know, even has a, a glorified position in Christ, when their lifestyle is going to be characterized by those things, it's, it's just as 
repulsive is when you see some person that's wearing clothes that are way too small for them, right? In fact, it's, I mean, it's worse than that. Um, here, uh, Paul says these things are not, are not becoming for saints. It becomes saints to not have those things named among them. And so, you know, the, we put all kinds, of, all kinds of care into our physical appearance. We ought to do the same kind of thing with our Christian walk. We ought to take out the mirror of God's word, look at our life, look at the things that are out of place, that are unbecoming, and do away with them. All right? Now, I know it's easier said than done. Right? But the word of God is something that is effectual, and as you take it in, it works in you, and it, and it does that work for you. And so Paul says those things are not becoming for saints. In verse 4, he lists a few other things. He says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 1, it says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul says that filthiness should not be, and he's talking about filthy talking, he's talking about, uh, you know, dirty jokes, dirty stories, that kind of thing. Here he tells you we're to be diligently involved in cleansing ourselves from that filthiness. Um, there, you know, there's a, a spiritual hygiene that is just as important, more important than physical hygiene. Uh, you know that, that much, just in the in the physical realm, you know that much of the increase in life expectancy, uh, people live longer today than they have since they've recorded uh, life expectancy, and the m- much of that increase is due to just simple hygiene. It's just the fact that people are cleaner than what they used to be, and we have running water in our homes, and we wash our hands frequently, and we wash our dishes and wash our clothes, and it makes us healthier. In the same way, simple spiritual hygiene lets you live a healthy Christian walk, a healthy Christian life. But it's often overlooked, right? It's not as visible. Part of the reason that that we take care of our physical hygiene is because people notice if we don't. And a lot of times the spiritual lack of hygiene isn't as easily noticed. But you see that there, there's a, a diligence that needs to be performed there in cleansing ourselves of filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Uh, Paul talked about foolish talking. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Understand that foolish talking is, is more than just joking around. In fact, when the Bible talks about foolishness, uh, often what God considers foolishness is not necessarily what the world considers foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You see, with God, often the things that are considered wisdom and foolishness are turned around. 
And so foolish talking is not just, again, it's not just joking around, but it's often the wisdom of the world. And, and lastly there, Paul talked about jesting. Now, he says in contrast to that, if you look back at the text, in contrast to those things, he says those things are not convenient, and that really means, that word convenient means the same thing as the word becometh up in the previous verse. It means they're not fitting. Um, what he says that ought to characterize the speech of the believer rather than filthiness, filthiness and foolish talking and jesting is giving of thanks. And that's what the scripture is talking about when it talks about a word fitly spoken. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Now, silver is a, a valuable thing, but gold is much more valuable. And, and it's saying that that word fitly spoken on top of everything else that's good, somebody who has that ability to, to speak the right word at the right time. So often when we're in a group of people in conversation, we kind of just get led along by the conversation, right? But really what the believer ought to be doing is looking for the opportunity to speak a fit word, speak the word that's going to get that conversation in the track where it ought to go. And often that can just be a word of thanks. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.